You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the show, my Freedom Pact family. We are on this journey of learning, skill development, and growth together. And today, I think that this is one of the most interesting episodes that we have done into the subject. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Suzanne Iacenza. Suzanne is a practicing psychologist that specializes in couples sex therapy and is a faculty member at the Ackerman Institute in New York City. Suzanne writes on topics like human sexuality and Suzanne has just released her latest book, Transforming Sexual Narratives, which is what this conversation is going to be structured all around. We discuss these secret sexual stories and narratives that we carry around us, the implications that they have on not just us, but our partners. We discuss online dating and how things like Bumble and Tinder how they've affected the modern world, whether Suzanne is still optimistic or not about relationships after 25 plus years of clinical practice. We also discuss topics like whether you can have sex without desire, whether there needs to be an orgasm for sex to be pleasurable, and so, so much more. This was such a pleasure to be able to speak with someone who has the level of expertise and experience that Suzanne has, and I really think that this episode will blow your mind. No pun intended. I hope you enjoy this fabulous conversation with the incredible Dr. Suzanne Iacenza. Hi, Suzanne. Welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing, Joe? I'm doing amazing. So when I was thinking about uh, your career and I was prepping for this, Suzanne, I was thinking, okay, so you've done psychoanalytical work. You've got 25 years of clinical practice dealing with couples in relationship sex therapy. To me, that seems like, you know, one of the most meaningful and fun careers someone could have. It is. I highly recommend it. <laughs> So never how do you, a dull moment. <laughs> never a dull moment. So yeah. when you look back on, say, the last 25 years, how do you reflect on your career? Oh, uh, it's kind of hard to believe it's that long. You know, we'd like, we, we'd like to think that, uh, you know, time goes so fast. I think when you are loving what you're doing, time goes so fast. So it's, it's almost so humbling to realize uh, how many years I've been at this. <laughs> but um uh, it's, it's, you know, there's some ways that things have changed so much, Joe, over all those years, because I'm old enough to have gone through some major things that affect relationships and sexuality. Probably one of the most um, impactful was, let's say, the HIV and AIDS crisis of the 80s. 
but uh, and the and issues with open marriage, the first open marriage wave. There's a second one now. Um, so there are many and feminism and you know all of the changes that have happened. Um, and then there's some just universals that it doesn't matter how many decades you live through, how many cultural uh, changes there are, um, that still um, there are just some basics that never change over time. So it's an interesting combination of seeing so many really sea changes, or let's say uh, even marriage equality passing in so many countries, you know, for LGBT people. So there are these major changes, and then uh, there are just some things that are always the same. What are some of the foundational truths? Because you and I both know Shane Parrish. Shane yeah. has this, this uh, you know, I would describe it as sort of a, you know, a, a real fetish for timeless wisdom. Which yes, I, which that's I love. true. <laughs> so what would be some timeless principles for relationships? Oh, well, probably one of the biggest ones, I think, are how, how to deal with differences. I think that is a major one. And uh, sometimes some couples might, when a couple comes into me, Joe, and says, oh, we, we don't have any secrets. We don't have any differences. We agree on everything. We know everything about each other. We tell each other everything. I get a little bit nervous. <laughs> Thinking, how could that be? These are two individuals who have different relational and family and sexual histories. And um, how could it be that that that's similar? Uh, Is it that there's some way they're co-creating this kind of belief that they are carbon copies and therefore everything is so harmonious? And uh, and there are even, you know, many couple therapists who would be a little bit... um, curious about uh, people never having anger toward each other, never feeling disappointment, uh, never really feeling um, that they are at odds with each other. So I think that uh, for, so for those couples uh, who might present almost as twins, um, there could be what we call emerging or a lack of differentiation, meaning they really can't tolerate the whole idea of being with someone who could be different in any particular way. It's too threatening. And they happen to find a partner who had that same level of, uh, you know, cannot tolerate that differentiation or the differences. But most people, when they say, let's say communication is a major theme, usually what that means is that part, partly what it could mean is my partner's too different from me. I can't persuade them to be like me or to agree with me. So therefore we have a communication problem. And actually, it might not be a communication problem. It could be you can't tolerate that your partner might really feel differently about X, Y, Z. So I think differences is probably it. And I often help couples reframe or re-narrate that differences don't mean lack of compatibility. Differences don't mean I should trade this one in for a different model, you know, who's more like me. It could mean more how could I begin to tolerate the difference? And we talk about it and be curious about it within each other, not judge it. Um, see, is there a win-win? We're not gonna be carbon copies, but almost like two Venn diagrams with the two circles. Can we find how much the two circles overlap enough that we can be happy enough? This whole idea of good enough is a very important um, concept in couple therapy. Yeah, I love that idea of, think in win-win type thing it's almost like um stephen covey in the seven habits right that's right one of the things in which i would love to discuss with you is when i put out this post there seemed to be a real appetite amongst our audience it seems to me like the general feeling is that there 
is we seem to be heading towards what I felt like a nihilistic view of relationships. People seem to be sort of losing faith. And I would even put myself in this end. And I'm the guy that I grew up and I was, you know, I was the guy that I love to love. Right? I'm, you know, I'm a connector, even, even in a situation like say like a, a one night stand or a hookup. I mean, I'm the, I'll ask them questions. I'll want to stay with them the next day. You know, all these things. Yeah. But I mean, even myself, you know, in this time where it seems like relationships seem to be more transient than ever, what sort of case would you make? Maybe perhaps it's not a, a reproductory one for relationships. Well, you know, one of the things I think has really changed relationships, um, and I'm old enough um, to say this, is I remember dating in the old days when you didn't have a phone you didn't have you didn't hook up on an app you didn't uh check someone's you know even the personal ads you know you didn't even have really that many kinds of personal ads or if they were they were in just a small little place of one particular uh magazine or one particular newspaper they actually read that was paper so there were no screens then um and and all the technology of connection now but i would say it's connection with a small c joe because it's so um it can sound so transactional you know so many of my patients come in and they're preparing you know things to put on tinder or grinder or you know any of the dating apps and uh they're it's like they're marketing themselves you know almost like an object you know and you know, I, I lived through the feminist, uh, you know, movement in the United States where we've, we battled for years against objectifying women, but we wouldn't want anyone to be objectified either. We don't want men to be objectified either or children, right? And um, many ways now, it's everything's so fast with technology and judgments then are made so quickly um, that the damage, we call it in analytic terms, there's so many opportunities for narcissistic wounds. I mean, it means there's so many times when you could be hurt in one day. You know, you just look and you see how many swipes did I get, right, or not, or how many likes or whatever the whole thing is. <laughs> I don't even know all of the technology because I intentionally don't engage in it. I think it, it um, I really think it makes for a real mental health problem, even with teenagers. I mean, look at the teenage uh, suicides that can come from social media shaming, uh, you know, the ways the kids put out things about girls and boys online and how much it's, it's affected them and damages them. So there's way too much public but non-accountable uh, relationships that kids are starting to experience from a very young age. And then when you move into dating times, uh, it just transfers right over to dating. And it makes people, I think, feel easily dismissed um and like someone like you actually joe who wants to attach even if it's with a one-night stand or even someone who would be like a dating you know girlfriend or something or but um but that you want to attach and um the attachment challenges of now uh the social media and the way people date i think is a real challenge from what you were talking about in terms of how things have changed i suppose if you went back maybe 30 years ago, you would see someone at the bar and you'd have to hype yourself up to go and approach them. That's right. You'd, you'd ask them out and then you'd go out and have a great date and you'd be thinking about them all week. That's right. And, and now I suppose you meet someone on an app. You don't even have to leave the comfort of your own room. 
That's right. You, you go out with them and you may even have a good date, but by the time you've got home, you've got maybe four or five more matches. That's right. I've seen movements like MGTOW, men go in their own way. I've just got no interest. I just don't want to even try to contend with it. So I wonder, you know, after everything in which you've seen in terms of, I, I, I wouldn't even like to guess the, <laughs> you know, everything which you've seen. Do you still hold a still hold a sense of optimism and romance about relationships or do you have a different view? No, I definitely do. And, you know, you can turn to neuroscience even, you know, and we do believe in science still here in the United States, despite what some of the narratives are coming out of our country. But, uh, you know, if you look at neuroscience and the neuroscience of love, like Helen Fisher's, Fisher's work, who I love, and uh, she really conducts the studies of neuroscience and love and, and attachment um, and sexual attraction. And, you know, like, after all, Joe, we're still just human beings. We're animals. We're part of the animal kingdom. And we are still wired in certain ways. And when you look at the early psychology studies, I don't know if you learned this in psychology class, but the ones where the little baby monkeys go and they either could have the mother that has some fur on it. It's a wire thing with fur. And then the other one's just wire. And the little monkeys that just have the wire, they die, they wither and die. The ones that have, the ones that have fur like a mother would be, they thrive. I mean, these are studies that really talk about how we are wired for attachment, uh, whether we think we are or not. Even if we say, I just want hookups, we still underneath have a capacity and a desire for attachment. And I think that's where all the optimism is, is ultimately our humanness brings us all together. It's an even playing ground. Even if our histories or our cultural culture or our peer groups are trying to tell us other narratives like, no, don't hook up or, or do hook up or don't fall in love or you're going to be hurt. Um, that's what I unpack all the time with people, no matter how old they are, is if they think they don't want to really become attached to one person, why not? You know, what's the story? What are the narratives, conscious or unconscious, that really leads to someone saying, I never want to actually make a life with someone? Um, or even if it's make a life with more than one person, you know, I want consensual non-monogamy done in an ethical way or polyamory done in an ethical way. So it's not like we have to privilege monogamy, but um, to not have some space for wanting to love and be kind and take care of another and be taken care of, no matter what the sexual arrangement is, I would think there's some narratives to identify on why someone uh, really believes they have no need for that. Because otherwise it's, it's almost like saying you're not part of the human race. Wow. What an answer. <laughs> I love that. That was gold. Um, so you just touched on the narratives there. Yeah. So the first question I've got for you about narratives, why is the belief that human sexual response requires desire as a prerequisite to sex a faulty belief? Ah. Uh. Well, now you're going to get me started, Bill. You should have me at some point. This is one of my most passionate uh, topics. But you know what? It really is about um, the narratives of medical practice. To go back, you know, uh, we believe that there that you know when you read about, let's say, um, diagnoses of sorts, that that's the truth. But if you really go back, and, and medical folks know this, medical philosophers and sociologists and historians know that. Um, medicine is a constructed kind of uh, body of knowledge, just like anything else. Yes, there's a certain amount of science that proves X, Y, or Z in terms of a disease, let's say, and a cure or something. 
But when it comes to how do we operate, what's the proper kind of sexual response in this case, that was created by human beings who went into a lab. Masters and Johnson started us off in the 1960s, and they actually had real couples, imagine, Joe, go behind a one-way mirror and have sex, and they watched it and wrote notes, you know, on how long it took people to have sex and what they did with sex. And they kind of launched the whole field of sexuality and human sexual response as a, as a model or theory. Uh, it did not include desire at that time. What they started with was more what we call arousal or you know, getting excited physically and then leading to orgasm. So the gift they gave us, and I'm using air quotes for people who hear this, is that sex always includes arousal and orgasm. Now that's problematic too, because that means that if someone has some trouble with arousal, like getting erections or getting wet or, or lubricated or, you know, uh, or they have trouble with orgasm, then under Masters and Johnson's idea of, of what sex is, you're already now broken or dysfunctional. Then in the 80s, there was Helen Singer Kaplan's work. That's when desire first was introduced into the medical and psychiatric psychological canon um, uh, into the sexual response cycle. So Helen's work was quite profound. She was a psychoanalyst and she was a sex therapist. So she was a really integrative um, pioneer, amazing person. And she though said, looking at Masters and Johnson's original human response cycle, there's something missing. And what she said was you're missing a first stage, which is called desire. So that, there it was in the 70s, 80s. Um, Helen Singer Kaplan's concept was so compelling that it was included within the, uh, the nomenclature in psychiatry and in medicine, in the, uh, what we call our diagnostic manual, the DSM. So from that time on, desire was added as a requirement of what we call healthy uh, sexual response. And you could know, like with anything else, Joe, once something gets um, put into a canon, into a form of knowledge, then people then start measuring themselves against it. And then people can be put into categories of either healthy or unhealthy, broken or unbroken. So you could almost say prior to the human's response cycle, including desire as a first step, there were no desire disorders because how could you have a disorder if the model doesn't have it in there as something you're supposed to have? So it's a very compelling part of history that, uh, that desire disorders were born after that desire was added to the human response cycle. So now you could be broken in three ways. There, here's the news. Either if you don't have desire or if you don't get aroused uh, or if you don't have orgasm. And um, I always talk about with couples right in the beginning, uh, the number one issue, by the way, that people come into sex therapy with, whether it's uh, men or women, whether it's gay couples or, or heterosexual couples, uh, the number one uh, presenting problem are desire disorders. What we call people coming in saying, I have no desire, sexual desire, or you could have what's called discrepant desire, which some of your people who are saying unrequited love, mm. this could be in that category where one person wants more than the other. So with desire, there could be that unevenness where one person feels more desire for sex and the other has little or no sexual desire. Um, but when they come in right away, I say, well, we could try and get your desire back or I could help you have sex without desire. The second option is much quicker. And actually what we could do is do both, but why don't we start with you starting to learn how to have sex without desire and then see if desire comes along for the ride at some point, we can work on it. And people look at me like, are you kidding me? You can have sex without desire? I said, yes, you can. I'll, I'll tell you how.
Masters and Johnson, they had this model in which desire would be a biologically driven function. Am mm-hmm. I right in saying that? So, so if I came to you at that period and I said, look, my desires, though, you would maybe suggest go and maybe go on hormone therapy. Would that be something like that under that model? When people come in, yes, even now, when people come in who went to a professional, a medical professional who still believes desire is necessary in order to have a good sex life, they often might, they might uh, say, why don't you take some testosterone, which is the kind of desire hormone, or uh, why don't we see uh, maybe you're depressed, so we put you on an, an antidepressant. Of course, that could be very um, complicated because some antidepressants actually do affect desire in a negative way. So, you know, but they, they could try to medically treat it. And, um, and uh, that's if you believe it's a, dis- a disorder. You know, I don't believe not having desires is a disorder, so I, I wouldn't go with that route. I wouldn't say, uh, you know, if someone wanted a, a, a consult with a psychiatrist or an endocrinologist, I would certainly give them one. But I would say, well, I'd rather work narratively with you, if you don't mind, and see if we can have you start having really enjoyable sex without desire. And then, you know, what's interesting, Joe, is sometimes when you don't focus on something so much that you feel is broken, sometimes it could then show up. You know, it's almost reverse psychology, right? You want to want to make something happen so badly. You feel so badly that it's not happening. It actually guarantees it's not going to happen. So some people find their desire later once they're having good sex. So why is telling each other intimate stories a good place to start? Yeah, well, you know, first, just to be able to be that intimate's a good start. You know, for many people, what makes sex uh, come alive is feeling connected. And they don't realize, some people say we're disconnected because we don't have sex. And I sometimes say, well, how do you know you're not having sex because you're not connected enough? I mean, who gets to decide what the order is of those things? So telling intimate stories, including the intimate stories truly of the negative narratives people were kind of burdened with, whether it was probably the mo- one of the most uh, heartbreaking and challenging could be abuse stories, people who were abused as children whether it was sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse, uh, or it could be people who were neglected as children, didn't have the parents' uh, real attention and love and cherishment that they deserved. And all of those don't have to come along with verbal narratives like, I wish you were never born, although I've heard those awful stories where people tell me that a father or mother actually said that to them. Um, It could be just through the behavior of the parent. If the parent doesn't make the child feel cherished and loved and and with good attention, the child could internalize that as a narrative of, I'm not desirable. Um, I I really, I'm not worthy of love. So uh, to be able to identify those and then share them with one's partner uh, who really does want to hear them and be an ally in terms of empathy and understanding the journeys that each person had and what narratives they uh, came out of childhood with is often a really solid foundation for then sexuality to be built upon. So that's a large part of my work is I will start often doing in-depth sexual histories and family histories with people before I give them any sexual homework assignments. Could desire be broken down into maybe different components? Because I got two different sort of models in my head right now. Uh I've heard uh, someone like Esther Perel say that desire is in the space between two people. 
Yes. Because love is the thing that binds them. Mm-hmm. And then I've got someone like like my own mother that I've heard say that she nothing uh, excites her more than seeing my dad clean up or do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a so, great aphrodisiac yeah. who cleans up the dishes and puts the kids to bed too. Yeah, <laughs> I often say that's what real foreplay is. It isn't kissing on the neck the right way. It's you tell your wife go in there and you take a nice bath, read a book. I'll clean up. I'll put the kids to bed. You know how that joke ends, though. But then the husband comes in, the wife's all ready. She's feeling a little now interested in more desire. And then she says, Okay, honey, let's do it. And he says, I'm too tired. (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of that joke. But go ahead. (laughs) So I I suppose, are are there perhaps, is desire contextual? Is it? Because I'm just trying to break those two different examples down. How would you approach something like that? No, and and it's true that, you know, um, with any. Uh, kind of uh, hypothesis people may have, and Perel has hers, and David Schnarch has his, and uh, there are so many people, uh, Stephen Mitchell, who is a great analyst, had his, and Esther talks a lot about his work. Um, they all have uh, various parts of desire that can be true on what makes someone feel more desire. For some people, let's say David Schnarch's work and, and uh, Esther Perel's work and Stephen Mitchell, all of them, Uh, actually are in the kind of area of you need to have a certain tolerance uh, for differentiation, the the very thing I talked about earlier, for there to be enough separation, enough mystery, enough uh, privacy uh, that then makes the person exciting to you. Like the not knowing, Stephen Mitchell would say it's the not knowing, the actual accepting of the not knowing of the other. I don't know that person so well that could make them desirable. So there's a, some very uh, compelling arguments for our tolerance to not be just twins, like I said earlier, but to, to tolerate the difference can fuel desire. But what I would say with most psychological theories, they, it's good for some, but not everyone. For some people, what makes them feel the most desire and the desire to even have sex is, is being known as much as possible to feel like there is a knownness, there's a familiarity, there's a comfort. So that I think the problem that happens in almost any field, right? Nature versus nurture, you know, closeness versus distance. Everybody has to get into their camp, right? So people then have all these arguments there. They could have these very, you know, they could be fun arguments to watch. But what I found in all the years I've been in the trenches is that just one size doesn't fit all. For some people, they do need more differentiation in space uh, that Perel or Mitchell might talk about or Schnarch might talk about. And other people, they need more closeness, more love, more uh, feeling empathy. Like, let's say, a Sue Johnson might talk about with her emotionally focused therapy. She would focus more on the need for more safety, more connection that actually could feel. And you know what? Neither one's right or wrong. It's all, I say, let's just let's just let them all exist as options and let's let's uniquely see what works for this couple or these individuals and maybe the biggest challenge could be when you might have two partners in a relationship where one really does feel they get more they feel more desire uh more desire for the partner when there is more differentiation and you have the other one who feels more desire when there's a little bit more closeness and and comfort how do you find again the venn diagram the good enough so it's not like either one is right or wrong but it's how can you blend it? How could it be a win-win? I remember I had one girlfriend who um, 
I remember I'd spent like an entire, basically an entire week straight with it. So we were together nonstop. This one time I was uh, sitting on uh, my sofa and she was on the phone to, um, I think maybe her mother or or, or her father. And she was talking about evolution and she was breaking down these concepts to her mother. I wasn't even, I just overheard it. And I remember thinking, I was like, wow that's attractive and she was going hot. through these incredible details i was like oh my god <laughs> yeah so what turned you on about that joe say more maybe it's um just like that you know wow it's like this is an actual person right it's like you know it's like she's been attached at my my hip for like a week and then she's like reeling off all this information that yeah. i don't know and it's like wow she's like a yeah. person <laughs> and she has a mind you yes. know you look look at what the work you do you love ideas that's why you're doing what you do. So, you know, the attraction of a woman who has ideas and who uh, thinks and who uh, can talk about them turned you on. You know, when I first meet couples, one of the first questions I'll ask them, which is very common, a lot of couple therapists do this, how'd you meet, right? You always want to hear the how you met story. But one of the things I'll ask in the how you met story is I'll say, you know, when you saw him or her across the room the first time, what really attracted you to them? Go back then and try and tell me, put me in the, in the movie with you, what really attracted you. And it's so interesting because sometimes I had one person say, well, I was in history class in college and the teacher asked a question and this voice came from the back of the room answering this question. I thought, who is that person? I want to know who that is. You know, and that she, he didn't even see her. So he didn't know how she looked. He didn't know how she walked. He didn't know what her politics were. He didn't know anything else. But he did know that that voice with that mind, so it's almost like what, how you describe it with um, your girlfriend on the couch, right? Mm. So for some people, then all these years later, they might come for a sex therapy and say, we want to have sexual chemistry. You know, we want to have that what's in the movies, right? You want to tear the clothes off and all that. I can't resist that body. And when you go to the, how were you first, what were you first attracted to? Sometimes it wasn't the person's body or looks. Sometimes it wasn't sexual chemistry. Sometimes it was intellect. Sometimes it was personality. I love the way he laughs. I love, we talked for 10 hours. Um, sometimes it was political. They met on a, on, you know, at a boycott and they were, and they, they were passionate about workers' rights, you know, and they fell in love on the, on the picket line, you know? And I want to remind and normalize for people, not all of our, even though you may choose this romantic partner or marry them or whatever, doesn't mean it was based on sexuality. That's one of those cultural narratives, you know, the Romeo and Juliet narrative. Um, that isn't always how people uh, attach or bond. Normalize that's very important. I suppose self-awareness must be really critical when it comes to intimacy. Totally, yeah. Yep. And to not feel that one's existence or awareness derives from the other. Like one of the biggest challenges I think people have is really putting too much power in the other to define who they are, to, uh, help, the, to help them feel either good in the world or not, smart or not, sexy or not, whatever it is. And almost in a Buddhist kind of way, I like to say, look, you need to turn the mirror back onto yourself. You're projecting or depending too much on the other. Turn it around and use whatever you're projecting or you're, you think you're taking or dependent on the other for and turn it around and look at yourself because 
our, our partners are our teachers in that sense. Whatever makes us feel bad or good um, is really a part of ourselves. It's not really about them. So the responsibility ultimately is in our own relationship to ourselves. We've talked a little bit about how we can potentially have sex without desire. Yep. So one of the things in which I'd love to touch on then is I believe that there was one model in which you highlighted where orgasm was the final end of sex. Right. Uh, so does sex need to have an orgasm at the end for it to be pleasurable? No. No. <laughs> That's the Thank other God. All our damn nights, right? Yeah, we're going to attack those narratives because you want to attack the, the narrative of you have to have desire to start, but also you want to like challenge the narrative of you have to have orgasm to say, gee, that was a successful night because um, many later models don't have orgasm as the end point. It has it in there, but not at the end. So other so, uh, for, models that are much more progressive and modern now and that are based on very good research have pleasure as an endpoint, for instance, not orgasm. There's a difference between orgasm and pleasure. Many, many people who I, I do histories with when I'm alone with them, Joe, would say if they haven't had orgasms, I'll ask them, does it bother you on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being really bothersome, how bothersome is it? And they might say, you know what, it's close to a zero. So I'll say, well, then what's the problem? Well, my partner, actually, it matters. It makes him or her feel what's wrong with me if I don't, quote, make him or her come, which is a very interesting languaging. A Betty Dotson, the great mother of the orgasm in the United States would say, we give ourselves our own orgasms, not our partners. It's <laughs> our big sexual organ is the mind and the connection of the mind to the body. And if you're orgasmic, that's because you're doing it inside yourself. You're using the partner, I mean, in a good way to enhance it, but it's all about us. And, um, but to have pleasure be an endpoint is so much more freeing. It's so much more expansive. And another endpoint can be connection. So some people will say to me, I had such a great sexual time last night with my partner. I'll say, oh, what happened? And they may tell me a whole story that doesn't have any orgasm in it, but they felt close. They loved the way he or she smelt or tasted or just touching all over and all of the arousal that can happen even without orgasm and feeling just cherished and desired and desiring the desire could be there but the orgasm wasn't so everyone really if you give them permission to go outside these very strict narrative of desire arousal orgasm human beings are has such a greater more expansive capacity to enjoy sex and that's why people stop having sex sometimes is they're trying to shove their relationship or, or each partner into this very narrow definition that then means either you make it or you don't, either you're functional or you're not. And then all the shame and the humiliation and the fight and the feeling rejected all then just pile on. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and it took me back to one experience I had when I was in university and I had, was dating this girl that I knew was more sexually experienced than I was mm -hmm. and I met her and um, she was appropriately dressed should we say and uh, <laughs> and by the time we we got to bed I in my head all day I'd been thinking about you know how am I going to perform or, or you yeah. know this or that that I was so mad that I just I just couldn't get an erection I was so there nervous so I yeah. started saying oh, 
I just got a terrible headache or I'm stressed or, you know, I saw this terrible thing on the news and it's this fault and it's that fault. And I remember she said to me, she was like, Oh, that's okay. We can, you know, I just like spend time with you. We can just watch some Netflix. And and I sat, I know. And I sat there and we cuddled and I swear within about two minutes, my genitalia had risen like Jesus on, on his second coming. So was that an example of how we carry these own narratives in our head and then we're projecting them onto someone else? That's right. And notice how you immediately, once you knew that you were going to be with her that night, you, you were, your mind was telling your penis, you better show up, buddy. Yeah. And that poor, pe- good for that penis. In a way, you know, I sometimes talk about, <laughs> you know, your penis is your friend when he says, too bad, I'm not doing it. Because, you know, why should he, everything be rested on him? And felt <laughs> a lot of pressure for that guy down there. So, you know, sometimes I, and she was fabulous. See, she, basically, she, she gave you an attachment answer because she was saying, you know what? I like you. Mm. I like you to sit with you and let's watch some Netflix because you're more than your penis. And that in a way, and your penis said, I like that message. <laughs> I want to be with her, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What a great story. There's a perfect example of how not having, that was the arousal part, not having to have that arousal happen really uh, allowed the arousal to happen. Yeah, that's amazing. So I want to talk about these, these narratives that we're all carrying around i think that in uh therapy i think you do boundary transgressions as the first part so is the key to even just getting out of our own head and and becoming aware of these narratives that we're carrying with ourselves is the first step just awareness yes it is uh that's the first and that often happens actually in individual sessions with me not in front of the partner because i want the individual to it could be four or five session individual sessions with each partner so you can imagine how long it could take over months if we alternate that with couple sessions but it really allows a person i ask them from your very first memory of sexuality so the first question i ask people when i'm alone is i will say well as far back as you can remember uh, as far back as as young as you could be, what's your first memory of sexuality? And so people might turn to me and say, uh, "What do you mean by sexuality?" And of course, then I answer it like a typical psychologist and say, "What do you? How do you define sexuality?" <laughs> <laughs> and then it's so interesting, Joe, because people will start with all different stories. I mean, if I if I just wrote down every single story I got to answer that question, it is so broad what people start with. Um, but that's their first memory. And, um, and then we unpack it. You know, what does that memory say? How did your first uh, experience of sexuality begin a narrative process? Because if your first memory was very pleasurable or good, let's say you were playing doctor with a kid in the neighborhood or something, and it was just exciting and it was fun and nobody was shamed and, and nothing bad happened. And, and then they, and you felt your first little inklings of arousal and being liked or just really having fun. Wow. That narrative, what's that narrative about? Your body can feel good. You can, uh, you can give or receive some pleasure or playfulness. Your body can be playfully you know, engaged in, no shame, no hurt, no coercion. What a gift, right? Or if on the other hand, someone says, oh, my first memory, oh, it was like 11 o'clock at night. My drunk father was coming up the stairs. I knew he wasn't going to turn toward his bedroom where my mom is. He turns toward my bedroom, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a story of 
their first experience of sexuality was uh, something that someone had no control over, and that was a major boundary transgression with all of the shame and the hurt and the anger and the fear all in their body and in their neurological system. Uh, to begin to then unpack that and understand the impact of that and all the narratives. The narratives coming from that could be, don't ever trust anyone. Don't ever surrender your body to anyone because they're gonna hurt you. Uh, sex is bad. Um, even, even pleasure could be bad because depending on when abuse happens, what state the body goes into of different kinds of experiences of arousal, but not pleasurable arousal, but just different things are happening. It could become very conflated with um, sex is bad, sex is hurtful, sex is guilt inducing. Uh, you know, it, it's, there's a lot to unpack in a situation like that. But boundary transgressions can be all the way from that kind of uh, experience to the boundary transgression of a, of a parent telling a child, um, a little girl, let's say, who wears her first miniskirt and is feeling really, really excited. She's coming out of her bedroom to show her daddy or her mommy, and they look at her instead and say, you look like a tramp or a whore. Get a, you know, go back to your room, take that off. That could be, that's a major boundary transgression, an emotional one, a verbal one, and the narratives that can come out of that. Don't ever feel good about your body. Don't ever share it and have any kind of exuberance or excitement about feeling good in your body and looking good. And then years later, a woman could have then a, desi a desire disorder, quote unquote, you know, no desire, no arousal, uh, not wanting to have sex, not wanting to address in front of her boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, it, it really could have its effects. Yeah, I find this so fascinating. It seems to me like the... I can imagine that pretty much nobody manages to get through unscathed, right? That we, we, yeah. you know, everybody's got something. You bet. Yep. Yeah. So that's very helpful too, Joe, and a helpful insight because one major kind of truth about couple therapy, whether you're working with sexuality or non-sexual issues is this idea that there is no identified patient in a couple, meaning now couples might come in feeling one person's the problem. So, and that, that's very common in sexual issues where one person, let's say the person without the desire, with the lower desire, oh, he's the problem or she's the problem or the one who, the man who can't get the erections every day, he's the problem. Um, but I, really experienced couple therapists don't buy the identified patient idea. We see couples as systems and people are co-maintaining a symptom, even if the symptom's located in one of the persons even if that person actually accepts the identified patient and says, yep, it's me, you don't buy it. Because as you're saying, there's always another story. The person, quote, without the problem, you go into their history, they did not leave that childhood unscathed in some way or another. Let's say they even were in, with a, uh, in a family system that was super duper great, right? Mom and dad were loving, mom and dad had the best marriage and they were love and they were a great model of people who loved each other, committed. They loved their children. You know, it's almost like one of those stories from the 50s and 60s before you were born, those happy family story, you know, TV shows. But, you know, maybe the narrative to that is, I'm never going to be able to match my parents. I'm never going to be, be as good as them. I'm never going to be able to, uh, you know, be the father that my father was or the husband my father was. You don't know what the narratives are. So, you know, every single, and you could look at the same family history, one that had alcoholism or physical abuse, and those narratives can be very different depending. You never know how a child is internalizing it 
what meanings are coming up. And many times folks don't know it themselves. That's why I spend so many sessions alone with them to help them become curious about how did all of the events in their lives, uh, they came out with some narratives of meaning about safety, about trust, about love, about sex. And they're good narratives too, by the way, Joe. So I don't want anyone uh, or your listeners to get an idea that we're only talking about, oh, it's all terrible. No, some people come out of with tremendous uh, narratives of resilience, of, uh, of love. Like one of the questions I ask in a sexual history is, tell me the birds and the bees story. Like, how did you learn about sex? And how did, did you learn about it at all from your family, anybody in your family? And some people have remarkably great stories where parents were very comfortable with sex. They're very appropriately so. They had that nice balance of being very informative, very open about it and, and educational, giving them books or having conversations, but they also wasn't too much. They knew not to flood the child. They knew uh, they had the right boundaries and doing it for the right reasons. Um, and uh, boy, are they lucky. A lot of those folks come out feeling like, no, I always felt good about my body. My parents always made me feel good about my body. And they even, they felt good about their bodies too. Because what another part where narratives could come in is not what parents do with us, but what they do with themselves. So some folks are carrying uh, narratives of incompleteness or uh, undesirability uh, or body image issues of uh, not being attractive, but it's really apparent. What they did was internalize their parents' feelings about themselves, mm -hmm. not, not uh, their own bodies, right? So that's why I also do intergenerational kind of history taking. I ask about, well, do you know, what do you know of your parents' history about uh, their safety, their, their childhood experiences, because some people can act as if they, let's say, had a sexual, they were sexually assaulted and they weren't, but their mother was. And so they're carrying the mother's unresolved, un unworked through issues of how they were abused in their childhood. And they, and now this generation's carrying it. It's called the intergenerational transmission of trauma, technical term for it. I love it. I love how, I'm not just in bed with my partner. I'm in bed with, you know, we're both in bed with our, all of our histories. So one of the things I'd love to. Oh, focus... Joe, let me just jump in oh, sure, there. Sure, please. So you could say all sex is group sex. That's <laughs> that always makes people laugh because <laughs> you're in bed with everybody. You're consciously with everybody. or unconsciously. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. I love it. I love it. Um, where was I going? Um, oh, it's gone. Oh, I remember, I remember, I remember. Right. So, so, so uh, I was going to ask, so in terms of these beliefs, I want to focus on perhaps how we can just bring some awareness to them, right? So I remember many years ago, I read Nathaniel Brandon's The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. Ah. And in the book, he gave this STEM exercise, which was just sentence- you know, I am, and then it's just sentences going across. Mm -hmm. At the time, I mean, that was revolutionary in terms of, you know, really discovering my thoughts about myself, you know, what I, what I felt, what I believed. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, is there any exercise which you have for myself, for our audience, which we could do to just sort of bring some light to these beliefs in which we may consciously or unconsciously be carrying? Yes, and, and they kind of, they're related to what I would actually ask in a sexual history, family history. The first one I would say, if somebody wanted to begin to unpack just for themselves a little bit or explore what their narratives might be, 
start with the first question, sit down, paper and pencil the old fashioned way, don't type it, use longhand, and just write down my first memory of sexuality. And then you sit and you meditate on that a little. And then write it, write longhand, what's my first memory of sexuality? Who was there? What was I doing? And then uh, really like, uh, as if it's like a movie scene, uh, tell me the movie scene. So write down the movie scene. Then after that, ask yourself three questions. What was I thinking when I had that experience? What thoughts, if I had, and if I don't remember, let me hypothesize, if I had thoughts, what thoughts would have I had? What thoughts would I have had? What feelings did I have? Like uh, sad, glad, excited, whatever. What, or what emotions? And if I don't remember what emotions I had, hypothetically now looking at that memory, what emotions uh, do I think I would have had? And then what sensations in my body did I have having that experience? And if I don't remember what the sensations were, uh, which could be pleasure, it could be uh, numbness, it could be uh, pain, whatever it is, um, what would I have had? What do I think hypothetically? So that's the first big scene to start to unpack. Then as you look at those thoughts, those emotions and those sensations, how would that experience affect me in my adulthood, my adult sexuality, my adult intimacy? Having had that experience with those thoughts, emotions and sensations, how do I think that would affect my wanting to go on a date? or start to know someone, share my deepest vulnerabilities with, share my body with. Um, so that's, those are sets of questions that I do in an actual session or like a, a sexual history uh, session, but that would be a big piece of writing and reflecting. And then after that, then I do a whole nother piece on what we call the parental couple. So they can have another piece of paper and say, my parental couple, if they had one, some people have single parents, but if you had two parents who were a couple, then I would say, I often say, tell me about what, describe your parental couple as a couple. How much did they love each other? What's the story of how they met? And if there was one and if they got it, and how much, uh, what, do you think that your parental couple was in love? Do you think they uh, were close? Do you think they liked each other, not just loved each other? How do you think they were, oops, sorry about that. How do you think they were in terms of sex? Now, the funny thing is, is most people we talk about in psychoanalysis, oh, the primal scene, we don't want the primal scene, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> imagine your parents having sex, most people say, oh, ew, right? It's an ew experience. But, you know, you don't have to get into the gory details of it. But to think about some people, when they start to write about or talk about their parental couple sex life, some people say, you know, except for my brother and I or my sister and I, I don't think my parents ever had sex because they didn't seem like they enjoyed it. You know, they never talked about it. I don't even think they really were sexual beings. So to unpack the, um, the parental couple, because when you think about it for most people, that's their first unconscious internalized uh, role model of what a romantic couple is, is our parents, if you had a parental couple. So those are two big foundational things to start with. And then always bringing it to, well, having had a parental couple like that, how do I think that affects my life now? And for some people, it could be, I'm trying to do everything. There's a funny joke about parenting, even kids, you know, when you have your own kids. I th think about what my mother or father would do, and I do the opposite. <laughs> so some people actually are trying to do romance or sex opposite to the way their parents were because they felt their parents were so negative as role models. 
other people are trying to be like their parents, but that could bring narratives or beliefs that I could never be an angel like my mother was or the saint that my father was, or I'm not as handsome as my father is. You know, I'll never get a beautiful woman like my mother is, whatever it is. So unpacking those two big areas are probably a really good place to start. Always tracking it to how might it affect me now based on what narratives did those experiences might I be carrying? The last concept I just want to touch on Mm -hmm. is when I was reading the article that you published, you talked about this idea of a uh, sexual buffet and like a menu type thing. A menu. menu. So (laughs) So when I was reading it, I could feel my heart start to beat faster and faster. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> this would be fun to do. That so, would be really fun to do. That's really one fun. of those fun assignments to do, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I come from Italian roots myself, ethnically, so, you know, food was just about the main, uh, you know, discussion and experience all through life. So, you know, and it's not any kind of surprise to make a food sex kind of analogy. Uh, you know, it's a common one. But what I like about it is it really is a playful way to get uh, partners to think about, and people can do this as an individual too. You don't have to be coupled to do this, but it basically is a way of honoring what is what your appetites, so to speak, or, or consist of. Well, how would you define yourself as a sensual, sexual, erotic being? So when I give this assignment, that's sort of how I give the instructions. I say, I want you to sit down again with a pencil and a paper, not necessarily typing it on your iPhone, even though some younger people still come in with their menus on their phone. But I kind of love longhand. But um, make a list. It would be like free association that analysts talk about. Think about eroticism, sensuality, and sexuality, and just write everything that you, how you define yourself as an erotic, sensual, sexual being, the things you would like to do with a partner, uh, the things that turn you on. And I always tell them, please don't judge yourself. Don't censor yourself. So there's no, not, nothing that's too kinky, so to speak, too edgy. And there's nothing too vanilla or you think is too flowery. You just put it all down. And think about your five senses when you're writing. Think about what might turn you on or feel erotic or sensual in terms of what you see or what you might hear or what you smell or what you taste or what you feel on your body so that people are really being fully sensual beings as they're making this menu. And uh, also like menu food analogies, you know, when we go to eat, sometimes we don't want a hamburger every night. And that could be a problem with a sex life menu is that one reason why sex could die out in a couple is that they're having a hamburger every night and they don't know it or they, they're afraid to try the spaghetti instead of the hamburger, right? Or another reason why menus are important to be playful about is I'll say, you know what? A, two, a couple might, one person might like Chinese food the best, the other might like Italian. You don't shame each other over that, right? Instead, what you do say is, okay, honey, Tonight, let's go Chinese, and then tomorrow night, we'll go Italian. There's no shame about that. People shame each other in terms of their sexual preferences many times. They wouldn't shame each other about their food preferences. And then even once you get to the restaurant, one person may say, you know, I'm not really hungry, so I think I'm going to have an appetizer. And the other one might say, I'm famished. I want a full course meal. And that would be fine too, right? Or ultimately, one person might say, you know what, I'm not hungry at all, honey, but I'll go to the restaurant with you and I'll keep you company while you enjoy your six-course meal. So I like to give those examples of food 
how couples can deal with food. Because if you dealt with sex, the way we deal with food in that way, we'd have a lot better times in bed, wouldn't we? Absolutely. Speaking to you today sort of brought this quote, which I read the other day into my mind. And it's a Proust quote. And he said, the landscape of discovery is not seeking new horizons, but seeing with new eyes. And I suppose that that could be applied to desire, to our partner. So I suppose that could sort of bring everything back together. No, it's really beautiful because if I were to go back to like Stephen Mitchell, the analyst who I I love so much, he gave an analogy in terms of passion and relationships to to a a kind of analogy of like, um, you know, when you go on a beach and you're building a sandcastle on a shore. It's such an incredible experience to co-create that sandcastle, but knowing that then the the tide's going to come in and it's going to take it down, right? Mm. But then the next day you come back with your pail and shovel and you're going to build another sandcastle and it'll be a different sandcastle this time, but you're still creating the sandcastle and the sun and the air and the wind and enjoying all the sensuality of that, knowing that now the next wave will come in. It's almost like what the Buddhist monks do when they do the big mandalas of the sand. They sit and they do these mandalas for like, you know, hours and hours. They build these beautiful mandalas and then they take it and they pour it into the ocean. And you go, oh my God, they did all those days of that mandala. Well, they're giving us the message that the, it's just like that quote, the joy in life is the doing, is the do in the being, the being in the moment, not what you accomplish, not the eye on horizon. It's the being present. And the more people are present with each other, that the body knows how to be with each other. We got to get, I often, another line I often say to couples is your mind is not your friend when it comes to sex. And actually I might even say your mind's not your friend, period. You know, usually our mind, if we're not feeling really good about ourselves, our mind isn't saying very good narratives to us. They're saying bad narratives to us. So um, often I'll say, if you could just be with each other as if your mind just really didn't have much to say, you're going to have a much better time in bed too. (laughs) that's so true so true i always ask at the end of every podcast based on your life based on your experiences if hypothetically you could broadcast a mass message to potentially every person on the planet um what would suzanne's message be oh it'd be be yourself and love yourself and then you'll know how to love each other well Amazing. Suzanne, can you tell our audience about the upcoming book and where our Freedom Pack family can connect with you? Oh, yes. Uh, It's called uh, Transforming Sexual Narratives, a relational approach to sex therapy published by Routledge Publishers. And you can go on to my website, SuzanneIascenza.com. And it has it there where you could order it through Amazon or through Routledge. It comes out May 18th and uh, hopefully it'll help the world. People love each other and have more sex and more fun sex. That's my hope. I love it. Suzanne, this has been such a pleasure. The book and everything will be linked below to whoever's listening. Now can just swipe up on the episode and there will be a link to Suzanne's book. Yes, yeah, Suzanne, this was such a pleasure. And, uh, yes, it was. We, we, we demonstrated how pleasure can happen, right? Absolutely.